God, we thank you that you are near to those who grieve, to those who've experienced loss. You're not just near to them, Lord, but you understand it yourself. Lord, we're also thankful that you have conquered sin and death, that you are the resurrection and the life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the very first memories that I have as I think about my early childhood is actually of attending my grandfather's funeral. I think I was almost three years old at the time. It's a foggy memory, but I remember being in a church. I remember waiting around afterwards for my dad. And I've been told by my aunts and uncles on my dad's side that they were just so glad that I was there, right? A toddler can bring a bit of joy and humor in the midst of the deep sorrow that they were experiencing with the loss of my dad's dad. Some of you who are, you know, have degrees in psychology, you might be psychoanalyzing me right now and being like, okay, you know, if, this is, if death is one of your first memories, right, that might explain something about you, Taylor. We've spent our sermons during Lent camped out in John's gospel. Probably noticed at this point, right? John is a fan of these long, not draw, overly drawn out, right? But drawn out stories full of details, right? Deacon Dan wonderfully read in an engaging way, 44 verses. And that's not even all of chapter 11. And these long narratives, they give us a unique insight into Jesus. Every one of these stories we've read during Lent, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the particular healing of the blind man that Father Robert preached about last week, right? Jesus has healed several blind men in the Gospels, but the one Father Robert preached on from John 9 is only in John's Gospel. All of these stories are unique to John. What's also interesting about John is John organizes his book in basically in half. The first half, all the way up to this chapter, and, and kind of turning on a hinge at chapter 12, they call the book of the signs. Signs being these miracles that John, that John describes Jesus as having done. There are seven particular signs, the first one being the miracle of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And the last of the seven is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, right? This is the climax, so to speak, right? We know whenever the Bible mentions the number of seven, you get this sense of wholeness, completion. This is like the ultimate thing. It's a significant number that we should pay attention to. And so, as, right, it's a long story. There's so many places. There's so many details. I'm like, there's like you know, there's at least seven sermons in here, right? If we wanted to get into the details, don't worry, I don't have seven sermons prepared. But as I was thinking about, what does this mean for us that we are hearing the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead during the season of Lent? I wanted to focus in on two ideas, two things, right? Not the whole thing, two things I want to pick out from the story. I think the first thing I want to focus in on is the depth of Jesus's humanity that we see in this story, right? The depth of Jesus's humanity. And the second thing I want to focus on is the obvious one, right? Jesus's confrontation with the ultimate enemy, sin and death itself. Think about where we began our Lenten journey together, 
right? If you were here on Ash Wednesday service this year, or if you've been to an Ash Wednesday service, how does Lent begin? We take the sign of the cross on our forehead, and what's pronounced of us? Our mortality, the fact that we will die, right? Remember you are dust, and to dust we shall return. Just like Jesus' dear friend Lazarus has died. But we know, right, that's not the end of the picture. That's why we can say those words. And it doesn't leave us hovering into this abyss, right, of gloom and death, right? Death is a real thing. We'll see it confronted in Jesus' story. I think during Lent, right, Lent can be a season where we confront our own frailty, our own limitations, our own sins that hold us back from what God would have for us, right? We might be feeling discouraged, but I think if we look at Jesus's care for his friends and how he confronts death, we might see what God might be up to in our midst. So we begin with Jesus receiving word that a man that he knows Named Lazarus, he's fallen ill, right? His, the sisters send, say, tell Jesus Lazarus is sick, very sick. But did you listen to how he's described in verse 3? He's described as the one whom you love when they address Jesus, right? Friends, this is how Jesus sees each and every one of us. We are those friends of Jesus whom he loves, And so how does Jesus respond then with this news? What's interesting is Jesus responds in a very similar way to how he responded to the news of the blind man when he confronted, when he was, when he found this blind man, right? This man born blind, right? This sickness, this result of sin, this disruption of God's beautiful creation, it's not from God, but it's a sign of God's glory soon to be revealed, And then we get this really strange and interesting description in verses 5 and 6. It says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and because he loved them, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was, right? It's kind of strange. He doesn't rush to be by his side. We don't actually know what Jesus did during those days, right? We could, it's probably pretty safe to assume that he's doing like the Jesus things, right? Like preaching, healing sick people, things like that. But what we do know, right, is that everything that Jesus does, Jesus does with intention, right? You can't hurry Jesus. Jesus always seems like he's interruptible. So I think about what it means to follow Jesus myself. This is something I'm constantly challenged with. Am I so busy with my life that I'm not interruptible, that there aren't opportunities that might arise where God's glory can be revealed, but I'm just too busy in what I'm doing to miss it? So I want to focus in here closely on Jesus' encounter with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. So when Jesus does arrive, John tells us that we find out that Lazarus has been dead. And he's not just been dead, recently died. He's been dead for around four days at this point. So it was customary in Jewish culture at the time to mourn the dead for around seven days, so about a week. So if you can imagine the scene, right, when Jesus comes into town, the friends and the family, right, 
they're in the midst of this week-long mourning. And Martha hears that Jesus is here. So she goes out of town to go meet him. Look at what she says in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my, fa- my brother would not have died. I think there are two ways we can read that, right? We can maybe read that as a complaint, maybe even like an accusation. But as I was reading this week, I, I read it as a, actually a statement of faith. Because what's interesting is Mary will say the same thing afterwards, right? They know who Jesus is. They've seen what Jesus is capable of, right? They know that if Jesus was there, Lazarus probably wouldn't have died. And so how does Jesus respond? Interestingly, right? He says, your brother will rise again. And so Martha thinks that Jesus is talking about the general resurrection of the dead, right? You see that in Ezekiel 37, right? That's this beautiful poetic passage about this hope and this expectation that Israel has that when God comes again, people will be raised up from the dead to be with God. It's this beautiful picture. That's what Martha thinks that Jesus is talking about. But Jesus challenges her, right? He kind of gently corrects her. He says, no, no, no. I'm talking about something different. What does Jesus say? He says it in this powerful way that he often does in the Gospel of John. He uses these I am statements. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you've ever been to an Anglican funeral service, you'll know that these words of Jesus are how every service begins. There are other scriptures we bring up as well, but as the casket is coming in, this is the pronouncement that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that death is not the finality, even though it is a reality on this side of the resurrection. Jesus asks Martha, does she believe this? And she says, yes. And so after this, Martha goes to speak with Mary and she tells him that the teacher, right, the rabbi is here. So this is just a small aside, but I think this is an amazing piece of Jesus's ministry, right? Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher. There were lots of rabbis and teachers in Jesus's day, but do you know what's really interesting? No Jewish rabbi would take on female disciples. Jesus does, right? They call him teacher. Jesus saw it fit for Mary and Martha to sit with the other men, the other disciples, and to learn about who God was. There's no point to that. I just think it's worth pointing out. Well, I'm sorry. Let me say that again. (laughs) There is a point to that. It's not part of the main point I'm discussing But I did want to point it out. It's actually a very significant point, but it's not tied into my sermon. But let's continue. So now when Mary sees Jesus, right, she's overcome with grief. She's come out of town and she actually has some of these other mourners who are following her. And she makes a similar statement, right? Jesus, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And this is where I really want to dig in and look at how John presents the story. In verse 33, Jesus sees her weeping, the other mourners weeping. And listen to how John describes him. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit. 
and greatly troubled. This is a really significant detail that John includes. Actually, if you look at this, this word for like deeply moved and um, deeply moved, hold on, where is it? Lots of verses. Deeply moved and greatly troubled. The word picture of that, of one of those words in the Greek, it's this idea of a horse that's snorting like a war horse getting ready for battle, right? Really agitated, wound up. It's almost like our translation slightly undersells Jesus's reaction, right? Deeply moved, greatly troubled. No, like Jesus is upset, maybe even angry. So what's Jesus angry about? He's not mad at Mary for grieving. I want to be clear about that, right? Quite the opposite, actually. He's upset that death has claimed a dear friend of his, and he is seeing so many suffering because of that loss, right? And Jesus shares in their grief too, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? That's like the verse you have in your back pocket if someone asks you a Bible verse in Sunday school. At least that's the verse I had in my back pocket if I had memorized, right? And that's like maybe a silly thing, but think about the significance of that. If, that, if, you, if that's the verse you have memorized, Jesus wept. Jesus had emotions. Jesus cared in the depth of his soul for people to the point of tears, And listen to the response of the others when they see Jesus mourning with those who mourn. See how he loved him. So it's these details of John that help to remind us this truth that Jesus is paradoxically both 100% God and 100% human in this way that's so hard for us to understand and to wrap our minds around. Actually, if you look at the history of the church, most of the heresies involve overemphasizing either his divinity or his humanity at the expense of the other part of his nature. And there are actually, if you look it up, there's one thing called the Council of Chalcedon that talks about this in depth. It's got a lot of fancy words, but essentially the idea is that we need to hold these things together simultaneously, his divinity and his, and his humanity, without confusion, without separation. I think it's, it, we might be tempted to look at the story and see Jesus crying, right? Jesus wept, verse 35, and say, oh, that's just the human part of Jesus responding. That's not the human part. That's Jesus's response, right? We might see him raise Lazarus from the dead and be like, that's the God part, right? It's not the God part. That's Jesus as well. Jesus is described in, and Father Mark mentioned this, this to me this week, and I've been thinking about this, right? When Jesus is, is predicted of coming in Isaiah, one of the ways that the Messiah is, is described is he is described as a man of sorrows. Isn't that an interesting description for Jesus, right? The son of God, the king of the world, to be described as a man of sorrows. He sees pain and he is with us in our pain. I think the question that I have to ask myself and I want to ask of all of us is, are we the type of followers of Jesus who can respond to grief and tragedy the way that Jesus responds, right? With true human emotion. 
So we've been talking about something um, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. There's actually a class that Father Mark is helping to facilitate right now about all of this. And there's actually an entire chapter in this book that has to do with grief and suffering and loss. I want to read you a quote from out of here that I think is helpful at getting at some of the things that I've been seeing in this passage. When we do not process before God the, fa- the very feelings that make us human, such as fear or sadness or anger, we leak. Our churches are filled with leaking Christians who have not treated their emotions as a discipleship issue. Grieving is not possible without paying attention to our anger and sadness. Most people who fill churches are nice and respectable. Few explode in anger, at least in public. The majority are like me. They stuff these difficult feelings, trusting that God will honor our noble efforts. The result is that we leak, though, in soft ways, such as passive-aggressive behavior, sarcastic remarks, a nasty tone of voice, or giving the silent treatment. Some of you might be thinking that sounds like someone I know. Also might be thinking that person that I know, that it sounds like that I know is maybe me. (laughs) So one thing that I want to say is that you aren't in this alone if you're in the process of grieving and you're dealing with these messy feelings. Actually, Father Mark leads a group once a month that's called, what was it called? Grief grief gathering, GG, easy to remember. And actually the next grief gathering is going to be on Holy Saturday, appropriately so. And so if you're wanting a place to process some of this stuff, we've got a space here at the church. But here's what I do want you to hear, right? Jesus wants to be with us in the places where we leak, right? He can handle that. So as I mentioned, this is like a turning point in John's gospel. Jesus is taking on death. And this is really significant, right? He's not just there empathizing and sympathizing with his friends. That might sound hollow without the fact of the resurrection. Jesus is able to do this because he can stare death in the face and conquer it, right? So what does he do? He raises Lazarus from from the dead. It's this amazing thing, right? John is clear again to say that he's been dead four days. Martha's concern is that he's been dead so long that he's kind of starting to stink, right? But Jesus calls him from death into life, right? This amazing last picture we see. And what's interesting about this as well, it's like I mentioned, this is where John's gospel starts to turn. And the irony of this is the last bit of chapter 11 that we didn't read is that the Jewish leaders hear about this amazing resurrection story. And this is the point, according to John, at which they start plotting Jesus's death, right? Jesus's conquering of death actually leads to this plot against his death. In chapter 12, they actually say that they wanted to try to kill Lazarus because so many people have been amazed at what Jesus is doing. They can't get over what he's doing. And so it's like, well, let's go kill that guy that Jesus raised from the dead, and maybe they'll stop talking about it. Lazarus is a sign that the new life of Jesus is here for us now, that we don't have to wait for the final resurrection, right? Lazarus is a sign for us to see and then we experience it fully after Jesus' death and resurrection, right? He makes it available to everyone. 
through the cross and the resurrection, not just the one person in Lazarus. This is why it matters that Jesus is fully human. So as we prepare for Holy Week, right, we talk about journeying with Jesus, right? We're about to get ready to walk with Jesus during this important week starting next Sunday in Palm Sunday. And as we walk with him, right, we walk through the things like the stations of the cross where we literally are journeying with Jesus to his death. We do that because Jesus walked our way with us, right? Including in our grief, in our pain, precisely to make this way for us, to say that death doesn't have the final word. I wanna close with a prayer from the end of this chapter in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I think it really gets at some of the things that we've spoken about this morning. So join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, when I think about my losses, I can feel that I have no skin to protect me. I feel raw, scraped to the bone. I don't know why you have allowed such pain. Looking at Job helps me, but I must admit that I struggle to see something new birthed out of the old. Lord, grant me the courage to feel, to pay attention, and then to wait on you. You know that everything in me resists limits humility in the cross. So I invite you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to make your home in me as you describe in John 14, 23, to freely roam and fill every crevice of my life. And may the prayer of Job finally be mine. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. In Jesus' name, amen.